0: Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to today's webinar. Uh, it is entitled, The Power of Process, The Role of the System Architect. We're very pleased to be joined today by uh, our presenter, Eric Effington. He's the president of Lean Shift Consulting. Um, I'm Mark Rabin from Kinexus. We're very happy to be bringing this to you today for uh, our customers and our broader community. So welcome, and, and please do continue to put in the chat where you're joining us from. Thank you to our presenter, Eric Ethington. He has um, what he describes as, and I think this is great, a pragmatic approach for lean. He has over 35 years of work experience at Delphi, Textron, and his own company, Lean Shift. So Eric has been fortunate to learn about the science and the methods of improvement from some of the best teachers available while, while working with highly capable teams in industries, including automotive, aerospace, and defense, healthcare, medical devices, energy, and logistics. So Eric has a bachelor of science degree in industrial engineering from Kettering University and an MBA in operations from the University of Michigan Flint campus. Um, Eric earned a Six Sigma design black belt while working at um, Textron. Um, he serves on the Board of Directors at Goodwill Industries of MidMichigan, as well as the Alumni Advisory Board for the Industrial and Manufacturing Engineering Department at Kettering University. Um, I know Eric because he is a faculty member. Um, he's been affiliated with the Lean Enterprise Institute for a long time. And he most recently co-authored uh, a new book uh, with Matt Zako titled, The Power of Process, A Story of Innovative lean process development. So we're going to learn uh, a little bit, take a deep dive into um, part of what's shared in the book, and I certainly encourage everyone to go check that out. So with that, Eric, I will turn it over to you. Okay, well, thank
1: you. Thanks for that uh, really kind introduction there, Mark. Um, and uh, thank to everybody for uh, joining us here today. Uh, I know this is it's tough to find an hour uh, it's also tough to just sign up voluntarily to spend another hour on a Zoom call. So I, I get all that. So anyway, uh, really appreciate you being here. And uh, what I want to do is just start out with a, a little bit about uh, what we're going to cover. And uh, there are three learning objectives that were advertised, a little bit of familiarity with a model that we introduce. Uh, I often refer to it as a series of lenses, uh, the SIXCOM model uh, we introduce in the book. Um, then get into defining the role of the system architect and the supporting skills, and then share practical lessons learned for someone getting started. And so that's where we're going to be going as far as learning objectives. Where I want to really start is a little bit about why why another book, why this book, and we really like to kind of refer to. And I when I say we, it isn't it isn't me and my my little puppy back there in the picture or anything like that. It's uh, it's me and Matt. Uh, the two of us. And uh, one of the things that we're really uh, attempting to do in this book is at least generate some thinking around breaking what we might call the rework cycle. And the reality is is we've personally experienced frustrations. We've seen this with other organizations that we've spent time with, but it's this uh, frustration when you're doing some really great stuff and a lot of smart people, well intentioned in everything, doing uh, some great improvements in the lean space. And in comes the new process, the new way of doing things, gets launched, and it pulls all the resources off the great stuff we're doing to actually go fix the new process. Okay, and that's that's what really kind of was our wake up call. We've personally had this happen, and we've seen it happen in other places. And it almost can start almost uh, an engineering death spiral of you do not, now that the resources are over trying to fix the new, the old isn't progressing anymore. And then you get the new up to speed. Now the next process comes in and it just kind of keeps repeating. And so what we really wanted to do is uh, in this book is to at least get some thinking and discussion going around the idea of uh, uh, doing this better upfront, never perfect, but doing it better. Uh, there's actually an article that Jim Womack published way back in 08. And in it, he talked about the idea of what's called Tozen versus Kaizen, where Tozen is essentially, uh, Uh, Kaizen that should not have been necessary, that could have been avoided had we done some things differently up front. And so that's where it comes down to where we say we're trying to break this rework loop. It doesn't mean we're going to launch perfect processes, but what it does mean is there's a lot of learning. In fact, a lot of what we do in Lean is hinged on learning. So why, why doesn't that learning that we're learning day in and day out make its way upstream into the upcoming processes? So we're really trying to break this development rework cycle this endless loop of consuming resources whether it's time people money or whatever so with that as a little bit of background we've as we've worked on this book and this took several several years of taking different runs at this um, we came up with a model. We called a six-con model. Again, I mentioned it's a series of lenses. It's really trying to drive you to learn maybe the right things at the right time. And it starts out with uh, what we call context. And that's where you're really looking at what does good look like. Uh, it's This is where value is understood. This is where the needs of all the different stakeholders are understood and what that value might look like to them. There's obviously the customer, but you can actually drive yourself out of business meeting everything the customer asks you to do. There's also investors, there's employees, there's shareholders, on and on. And so it's like you're really trying to look at the value equation from all of those lenses. Obviously, the customer's king, but what's that intersection? What's that sweet spot? And what does performance, good performance, look like in in those in terms of those? And then the idea of concepts is, okay, now that we've identified that sweet spot, let's zoom in on it. And let's start coming up with the multiple ideas to uh, fulfill that value equation. Um, and in this case, it's multiple process concepts. Um, I always like to warn people that, you know, we we live in a, an infinite universe. And if all you have is one idea, you probably haven't stretched yourself. There's There's a lot of options out there. And so that's what we're really trying to get people to think about in concepts is what are a lot of the different ideas that we could look at? What are some ways of looking at them? What is better about some than others? And then that'll lead us into the next area, which is converge, which is where we take all of those different ideas and we start running some experiments, some tests. We learn some additional things. There might be more clarity on the requirements of the program, but all along here, we're starting to converge those ideas from the many to fewer to the one loose idea that we're really going to go forward with. That's when we get into the next phase which is configure and that's where we tighten up the the looseness of that idea and you know for simplicity we call it configure there's also embedded in that the idea of connect uh, which could have been a seventh con, but we just decided, you know, now we're getting a little carried away, but it's not just how are you physically con- configuring things, but how are you connecting this? Essentially what we're trying to do is develop a value stream here. It isn't that we're going to just put in some physical tools, some workplaces, some workstations and say, we're done. How does this whole thing connect together? And then, so within configure, we're driving down into that detail, the, the actual detail process design. The next element is confirm, and that's where we're, as this thing is being installed, whether it's a new clinic going in, whether it's new processes within a transactional environment, whether it's a new line, um, as this thing is starting to come together and the components are coming together, what can we be doing to test that to see if it's meeting the original metrics we had discovered way up in context? What does great look like? Well, we're going to have you know certain margins, certain quality levels, certain delivery capabilities, and so on. How are we doing? Um, and we're supposed to keep an eye on that all the way through this. But at this point, we're starting to get some physical stuff that we can test and run real experiments on the actual The actual configuration, and so this is where we run those in some, I'll say, uh, predetermined methods, and come and do some reflection. It's essentially the PDCA cycle on the on the entire. Uh, development uh, process, development cycle, and then the final one is actually continuously improve. I, I started off saying you're not going to launch something perfect, okay? And if it was perfect, we we're not smart enough to know that it truly is perfect anyway. Um, the other thing is, is unless you're putting energy into improving something, the ch- things of the world are changing and making it degrade anyway as a process. And so there's always going to be that need to continuously improve. But now we're actually driving continuous improvement. Starting at a higher level than if we were to do what maybe has been done in the past, and we reproduce what has already been kaizen, and we just take the prints from three years ago or the design from three years ago and go plug it in. So, why do I give you all that? This this isn't for advertising by any means. It's it not to overuse the word, but it's context for this system architect. What is on their plate, and so that's why I wanted to start with this to give you some idea of. When I talk about a system architect, this is part of what they're going to be managing all along. So essentially, the system architect, as we flow from idea to delivery to get certain outputs, the system architect is the person helping to orchestrate all of this. And as they orchestrate this, they essentially have what I would say uh, two problems, two big Problems to keep their eye on. Okay. One is the development of the physical value stream. Again, it might be the clinic, Um, it might be a new type of treatment process that's being designed, but it's the actual development of that physical value stream. But interdependent and overlapping a bit is also managing and spreading the new way of working because this shouldn't be a one time thing. This Needs to also uh, occur over and over again. So how do you systematize it? And also, the word "managing" in the front of this phrase is really starting to, you know, imply that. People developing the physical value streams are going to run into issues and roadblocks and stuff, and there's going to need to be management support there, leadership support. And so the system architect is actually really responsible for getting these two problems or getting the organization to address these two problems. Um, It might be a, a bit of a stretch, but you could almost think of these as two A3s. And the system architect owns both A 3s They're they're going to be the writer, the author. They don't have to know it all, but they are responsible for getting the organization to understand these issues and act upon them. So architect, I want to spend just a second on the word architect because it's you know it's a one of those big what, what is, I don't know the phrase ten dollar word or hundred dollar words. Like why why did I just say change agent? That's in one of my early careers. We called. Folks maybe like this a change agent, um, but the idea of an architect uh, was first introduced to me. A uh, uh, guy named Dave Logozo. he was with uh, LEI at the time in 2009. He was doing a senior leader series, and he kind of threw out this idea of the architect as a as a word to describe this. And it really resonated with me, not just because of the definition, but if you think about an architect, they need to know enough about buildings and building construction and stuff to help guide and set a vision but they aren't swinging the hammers they don't know maybe the exact latest in construction techniques but they know enough to be able to guide the whole thing to come together and and also to be able to set that overarching vision and so the term really stuck you know, back in 2009, it stuck. And, and so Matt and I have proposed the term in the book that we have this idea of this system architect. And they, again, really are, ha, are responsible for maybe we'll call it these two different problems, these two different A3s to work. So with that, what I want to do now is just shift gears for a second to the role and I'll describe this at a high level. I wanna make sure we leave time for questions. Um, I always think it's uh, uh, you know me trying to guess what you really want to know is, is kind of uh, being self-important or something. It's like, I'd rather you just ask me what you wanna know, but let, let me give you a little bit more of a framework to, to ask some uh, questions around. And so one of the things that system architect needs to be, and I mentioned this on the previous page, is almost like that resident visionary. Um, to uh, get the organization to set in a line around a vision, that could be the vision, the vision for the the physical value stream that's being designed, and it also can be the vision for the company as far as where are we going with this idea of uh, doing process development in a in a better way. Um, the second thing is being the I would call it the resident historian, and that is really doing the knowledge capture. There's a lot of great work that's going to be done. Uh, but sometimes we don't take time to reflect on the great work and then to capture that knowledge in a way that can be useful the next cycle, which, you know, kind of takes us back to slide one of this presentation of breaking the rework cycle. If that information, that knowledge isn't being captured, then it's almost like a resource that you're burning and losing. Um, there's a lot of conversation I I hear about, you know, knowledge capture, knowledge reuse. It's, you know, it's an asset, uh, The the trick is is how to capture it and how to get it back into the process, and that's part of the system architect's role. Another role that they're going to have, and I'll throw both of these up at the same time, is mentoring and coaching at almost two different levels. One would be uh, being able to mentor and coach the team developing the physical value stream, so there does need to be some technical skills there to know enough to be able to help people through the discovery of what could the process elements, how could they come together? What could this value stream configuration look like? What could the detail workplaces look like? And uh, to also coach people through that that uh, that discovery. Um, same thing with the leadership team. Uh, this system architect needs to be able to coach and mentor the leadership team because Quite honestly, a lot of leadership teams are going to want more faster. They might want to, you know, oh, this is, we're, we're seeing some great early results. Let's spread this right now everywhere. And it's like, we might not know enough. So you need to be able to mentor and coach there. You probably will need to uh, spend some time helping them understand what better coaching might look like um some might want to rush in when a team raises their hand and says we have a problem and exhibit certain behaviors that are are going to be counterproductive and you need to be able to help along with that so there's this ability to mentor and coach at the micro level but also at the macro level that the uh, uh, system architect needs the next one is really to be a program manager of both of these. If you look at them, uh, again, if we use this A3 analogy, on, somewhere on the right-hand side of that A3, there's gonna be some implementation going on. And uh, the uh, uh, system architect needs to have those program management skills to ensure that whether it's developing the physical value stream or managing and spreading the new way of working, we are hitting our timing We can see early problems coming up so that we can maybe avoid timing misses, or if we do have some sort of milestone that we miss, how do we get back on track? And the reason performance is in there is, again, both of these elements, whether it's the physical value stream or the new way of working, should have some performance characteristics that you're targeting at the end of the day. Uh, Maybe the uh, I'm just making up stuff here, but maybe the new way of working, you want it to have a certain lead time from when we start the process development to when it's up and running and hitting all the performance metrics, it should be a lead time of seven months. Okay. So how are we doing on, on achieving that? So it isn't just a matter of, are you hitting the timing of the development, but are you really actually hitting some sort of performance metrics? Uh, you know, whether it's a lead time metric, uh, uh, a people resource metric or so on. And then the uh, last thing I have in here on the role is what I call the liaison. And that is you are gonna probably have to be that bridge, uh, especially early on as this, how these two different things interact uh, between the team developing the physical value stream and the leadership that's there to support them. Um, you will probably have to facilitate some of the interactions um, and again, some of that's going to happen during the mentoring and coaching, but you do need to be able to play that liaison. You might need to be able to, uh, help the, the team, uh, understand that. Yeah. What the manager said, they might've said X, but they meant Y there's a lot of that, that will probably have to go on, but that's that liaison role between the two. So that's some of the ideas of the role. And again, if you think about it, and if you think about even, uh, any experience that you maybe have had in problem solving in A3, a lot of these are roles that you play when you're trying to work a problem solve. You know, you're trying to mentor and coach. You're trying to keep the timing. You need to have technical skills and and, and so on. So there's, there's some an analogies there. As far as getting started, some things to think about, and this is eight items that kind of bubbled to the top. Um, I believe when Mark sends the PDF out. There's a, a, a final page in this that might have 18 ideas, and these eight kind of bubbled to the top, and I, you know, kind of need to limit it, right? Um, but one of the things is aligning on that shared reason for change, uh, and that one's pretty. You might be going, uh, yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, we we talk about that a lot in the improvement world. Like, what's the burning platform? What is that? That why do we need to change? But that is really important because it's a way to bring everybody back to uh why we need to keep the resources and the focus on this activity. If if there isn't a real reason uh to to drive some sort of change in the organization, everybody's gonna lose focus. The fire of the day is gonna draw them away, and you're not gonna make you're not gonna make progress. Um pick something meaningful and try. Um, so instead of this being a theoretical discussion of what, you know process development can be of what system architects do. Uh, pick an actual project, and it needs to be a meaningful thing, something that needs to have a process developed. Otherwise, again, I'll go back to the same phrase, but the fires of the day will draw everybody in different directions, and so it needs to be something real and tangible. Um, this one, it says, have a bias towards organizational stability. This might be a tough one, okay? Um, but I've seen it Undermined uh, a lot of improvement activities over the year. What I am trying to say here, and this might be tough during the, uh, I've been seeing a lot written about the Great Resignation, and you know, and and so on. But if your organization keeps reorganizing every year, it's going to really be tough to get anything like this to stick. Um, there have been times in my career when I, as the continuous improvement person, was the highest seniority in my job role person uh in a plant amongst the leadership team and that's that's wrong you know and i i've been there 14 months and but there was no one that had been there more than 14 months cuz they kept reorganizing it's it's just almost impossible to get things going and so um it, people will move in and out of roles and that's great because you as a system architect are the resident historian you can bring them up to speed but Also, try to keep the organization from reorganizing every so many months because it does make this a very difficult challenge. Uh, Make help helpful. So here I'm borrowing from a colleague of mine, uh, Jim Morgan. Uh, That's who I first heard this from. Uh, And, uh, you know, he often implores leadership that help needs to feel like help. And so if leadership's version of help is oh you're off target uh, you get to come in and report twice as often to me on status that's not helpful help okay so we, we we need to really think about that is as you're designing the system getting it to work that that help helpful is happens to be in the same band that the liaison role is in because that's where you're probably going to have to uh, play some of that is when you're Uh, being the liaison, also watching for is the help we're giving actually helpful or is it just more busy work or is it actually slowing things down? Number five is coach situationally. Uh, This may seem obvious and I'm not trying to poke a bear here or anything, but there's a lot written uh, on how to coach and what better coaching is. And I think it's very good to keep that in mind But one thing I don't think gets talked about enough is whoever you're trying to coach, what do they actually need? Like, be be situational. Sometimes someone, it's just not the right day to give someone another open-ended question. They they, they don't need that today. They need, they want help. They want helpful help. Okay. Uh, Sometimes that's very motivating because someone's in the right mental space to say, yeah, I, oh, okay. I'm glad you asked it or put it to me that way because now I've just learned on my own, but I just want to warn people that you really need to coach situationally. Um, and I would also encourage one thing that doesn't get talked to, uh, about a lot is to do some reflection with the people you're coaching and saying, "So how was that? Did that help you? Did that? Uh, do you have some confidence in taking the next steps? What are those next steps you're going to take?" Uh, so encourage that reflection back to yourself as you're coaching. I just like to remind folks also that you can mentor upward uh, in this type of role as a system architect. You're you're going to have to. Uh, just because of helping to establish this as a new way of working, there's gonna be people up higher in the organization that you're trying to coach. Um, But don't just think that, oh boy, I wish my boss knew this, or my boss behaved this way. There's, think about uh, uh, creative ways that you can coach your boss, your boss's bosses, and mentor upwards to get all of this to come together. Avoid lexicon traps. That's a fancy way of saying, if there's some word that carries some historical baggage in your organization, when I was uh, starting to do lean in Flint, Michigan, we did not use the word lean. We just stayed away from it. It was all about how to make jobs better. Uh, Let's make that workplace better. Let's reduce the number of motions it takes you. Two years later, we could talk about lean, but if there's if there's some words out there, just just don't use them. Don't get it's not a battle worth fighting. Um, I've also had that uh, when it came to A3. Sometimes that might carry some baggage. I don't know why, but that doesn't matter. Um, just don't use it. Here's a big piece of paper. Let's have a conversation. <laughs> okay, uh, that that is really what this is trying to get at. Number seven, number eight's going to seem a little maybe out of left field, but I would really encourage you to ga- engage your HR organization. Um, early on in this. And it's for two reasons. One is for feedback. Uh, HR in a lot of organizations can be part of that, helping you mentor upwards and helping to give the right feedback to the right managers at the right time. You, uh, I've done that uh, a few different times in my career where you have your HR lead, your HR business partner in the room, during some sort of engagement. And then after the engagement's done, we all retire quietly uh, with HR uh, and the leaders back into another room. And the HR person just gives some direct feedback about what they saw about the dynamics within the room. And so they they can kind of do that without you know getting themselves or anyone in trouble. Um the other thing though we sometimes don't think about is when you do take an organization through some cycles like that, this you're gonna develop some really good continuous improvement folks. Is there a career path for them? Um, often organizations don't think about that. The only career path is for them to go directly into some sort of line leadership job or you know, uh, run the clinic or something like that. And some people really love this type of work and are really good at it. And they're very comfortable in this uh, problem solving and managing flu- through influence space. And you know, do you want to force them into roles that they don't want, or are you going to force them to really capitalize on it? They have to go to another organization. And I've seen that happen many times where we didn't think upfront about the, the path component for folks bubbling up in an organization through some of these experiences. And the only way they can uh, get some additional benefit career-wise out of what they've learned is to jump ship, go somewhere else, and take all that knowledge and skill with them. So that's why I threw number eight in. Again, there are like 18 different ideas I had, but I thought eight seems a little bit different than the other seven, but it's, I think, actually a really critical thing to think about is HR and how HR can help you make this happen. Um, And that's for all my HR friends out there that I've worked with over the years that have been so great. So that's what I have presentation-wise. Again, I wanna thank you for uh, having me uh, in to, to talk briefly here, and then uh, I'm gonna pass it back to you, Mark. To...
0: Thanks, thanks, Eric. We have uh, time for a long Q&A session. Um, we, I don't think we've ever had anyone complain that Q&A was too long. So thank you for leaving um, time and, and space for that. Um, a couple of quick announcements. Um, to be notified of future webinars, um, go to kinexus.com slash webinars. There's a place where you can sign up to be notified via email if you're not already getting notified of upcoming webinars. Um, December is still uncertain. It might be an ask us anything format with uh, Dr. Greg Jacobson, who is a CEO of Kinexus, uh, him and or myself. But if you want to be notified, again, kinexus.com slash webinars. If this is your first time attending one of our webinars. Um, We have this library of more than 100 um, recorded webinars from the past couple of years. Um, Those are all freely accessible. Um, Again, kinexus.com slash webinars. Look for uh, the button to click on for the webinars on demand library. Um, Additionally, we have uh, a blog, blog blog.kinexus.com. There's uh, something on there. Uh, almost every day. Again, you can subscribe to receive those via email, or we encourage you to go check that out um, at uh, whenever you like. And then we also have a a podcast. The audio from today's webinar, if you'd like to revisit or share it, um, will be available in the podcast feed later today. You can get to it at kinexus.com slash podcast, you can subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, basically any uh, app. Uh, Overcast is uh, the favorite podcast app of uh, Greg Jacobson, and I've been using that, and it's available there as well. So I encourage you to check out all of those resources, and you can see contact info here, um, Eric's email and uh, his website, Leanshift.com com, so I'm going to shrink that a little bit, and bring the focus on uh, us as uh, we have a chance to chat and um, take questions. So we encourage people, please do continue submitting those questions via the Q and a function um, if you can instead of chat. Um, so uh, one one thing I was going to ask you to follow up on Eric, if you could you know you you mentioned earlier in in terms of setting context of of what to do and, Being customer focused is talked about so much, of course, by Toyota and within lean methodologies, but you you talked about maybe this pitfall of the risk of going bankrupt doing everything customers might want. I was wondering if you could give an example or just sort of elaborate on that a little bit.
1: Um, Yeah. Uh, So let's just say that there are uh, the the auto industry, you mentioned uh, Toyota, the auto industry is probably full of examples of suppliers that do genuinely put the customer first. That, you know, the the, the quality levels. In fact, when I uh, left auto years ago, I was, I was somewhat surprised there were a lot of prerequisites that you have to have in place to compete in the auto industry, even as a supplier that's been beaten down over the years. There's a lot of prerequisites that you have in place that you don't realize other industries Aren't considering yet. So that was that was kind of a big eye opener to me, um, and I've seen a lot of organizations where yes, you you deliver, you you do not disrupt a car plant. You hear the the stories of you know how much per minute it costs to shut down a line uh, of helicoptering parts in. So that you don't interrupt the line, you know, so things don't go down of great quality, or at least shipping great quality, even if you have to put a bunch of extra inspectors at the end of the line, because something's not quite right in the process, or, or in the actual design, and and so on and so forth. And so at the end of the day, the customer gets exactly what they want when they want. Um, But you spend a lot of money, a lot of resources getting there. Now, there are some customers that would say you didn't give them what they wanted. I would argue that maybe a Toyota would say you didn't give us what we wanted because we want you to be stable too. But there's many out there, many customers that will all come across they don't care about that. They're just looking at did you give me what I want when I wanted it? Does it work? So so that's why I say that is there's there's other you know the you know good descendants Really good decisions are always made in tension with other things, and so yeah, you, you can can you do all that but still make a profit, and can you do all that and still make your employees feel like they're engaged in the work and that they're going to have a job to come to tomorrow and it's a safe environment? You know, that that's what we're trying to get at there. Okay, thanks, Eric.
0: Um, when you were talking about some of the roles of system architect. And you, you talked about being a visionary, being a historian, that seems to suggest that the system architect is probably a fairly senior person. Is that fair to say? Or can can you talk about somebody, if you were to choose a systems architect, how much of that is, um, how important is that?
1: I don't know if they need to be uh, senior. They do need to have enough I, I would say at least enough credibility in the organization that people, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but there is this idea of power of position, you know, that if you're a certain level, people are more likely to listen to you than if you're an entry level. Okay. Yeah. Um, likewise, the more senior you are, the more exposure you and opportunity you may have had to work with senior leaders that they'll listen to you too. So I, I don't think this would be an entry level type thing. Um, but also the historian thing, I would almost say it's you're the historian going forward. Mm-hmm. So you you don't have to be senior from the perspective that you can, uh, you know, remember everything that's happened in the past. Uh, but you do need to be the historian from the perspective of relative to mm-hmm. this thing we've picked that we're going to do. Uh, you're capturing the history so that for others in the
0: future. Yeah. Okay. Because you know, there's it seems like there's a parallel between system architect. And value stream manager. Of- yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: There could you could draw draw some parallels there. I, I'd say the the one difference, and I guess it depends. You know, this might be a terminology thing. Mm-hmm. Is you could be the, the you know the value stream manager, but you're also going to the system architect is also developing and going to own the process of. How are processes, how are all the future value streams going to be developed? Not
0: just the one I'm managing, but all the future ones. Yeah. So there's a difference between managing, let's say, thinking in healthcare, an emergency patient value stream, somebody who's helping manage flow and make maybe incremental improvements from everything from uh, EMS through inpatient discharge, because nobody has management oversight over all of that. So we, we put in a role of a value stream manager. But what you're talking about is more of the process for what happens the next time we have an opportunity to build a new clinic. Yes. We're we just yeah. building a copy of what we had before, or what you're describing is a process for um, to some extent, reimagining or, or reinventing.
1: Yeah, because this is you know, this is a different different way of working, you know. Um, and uh just like Many organizations might have uh a, let's just use general terms but a development process just a you know product development process there's there's a product of there's a you know these particular steps and milestones and gates you go through to develop the product, mm-hmm. and somebody owns that overarching process and so if if it's not performing the way it needs to if there's a, you know it's taken too much lead time or whatever, whoever owns that can go back, reflect on it, work with the organization, rewire that process and make it work better. Um, The system architect kind of owns that in the process development space. Um, You could ask the question, well, why not have one own it product through process? And I'm like, that would be great. We we didn't write the book from that perspective because we thought there's probably more organizations that are going to start brownfield in the you know in the middle of this stuff than there are they're gonna start at the very beginning all the way to the very
0: end. Yeah. And it sounds like maybe it's just a um, check of one one other example that maybe comes to mind is. You know, major drugstore chain is focusing on expanding um, primary health clinics within the footprint of their store. And it seems like then whether they're doing renovations or building new sites, there's, there's the space design question. And then there are the work design issues. A system architect would try to in- make sure that's integrated. Yes. Yep. Yeah. In fact,
1: uh, that's part of what we try to Um, get across in some of the detail is that as you're getting, going through more and more uh, iterations, you start with uh, some of the different concepts that it's better to let the work define the space than to lock in on the space and then shove the work into it.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, I, I think back to 20 years ago, I was working for a major Computer company, and there was plans to do a new factory. And I I think, I mean, we we weren't. I know we weren't following this methodology, but I think the system architect, in a way, was the vice president of manufacturing who could sort of dictate, like, we're going to have no storage for parts other than what's at the line side. Now, okay, here, team, go figure that out. Like, I mean, he was kind of making high level pronouncements. He had he had the vision. And then it required really a large team to think about how do we design workflows that can allow things to flow even with space constraints? Does that seem like a a system architect type decision or? Um,
1: They would definitely be definitely part of that. Uh, One thing we, uh, we talk about is we call it an operational declaration, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's essentially, it's an informed declaration. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, there's, there's this fine line between, uh, uh, stitching together just a bunch of lean slogans mm-hmm. and putting together a a operational vision. You know, uh, I remember we had uh, in one of the places I worked, you know, somebody tried to put together, here's what the model cell looks like, you know, and all the attributes of the model cell. And it was kind of like a Swiss army knife. It, it was Good. It could do a lot of things, but it actually didn't do any one product well. If you tried to put if you tried to put your product through this model cell, it it just wouldn't work that well, right? So the the system architect uh, definitely is part of what is that operational declaration. Just like you said, you know, there's going to be you know only so much many parts line side, or there's only going to be so much inventory at certain points, or there's only going to be you know we're going to try and you know work you know, this is going to operate on a certain number of shifts. Perhaps a clinic is only going to, it's going to run so many hours a day and we want everybody to go home at quitting time, you know, not, not, oh, and now people have to, you know, work another two hours because we have this backlog of patients that we didn't actually get to see, you know.
0: It sounds like following the model that, that you and Matt talk about in the book, you you would have an idea of this organizational operational pronouncement, but then you're going through some cycles of let's let's make sure that this is going to be workable. Like there's something like yes yeah, so yeah you, you there's something to be said for um, kind of a moonshot ambition, but there's the reality of we need a factory that's going to be able to run. Like let's not um, ha- let's not hamper ourselves by sticking too stubbornly to a pronouncement so as you go through these cycles this is where you talk about um, converge and configure of just kind of iteratively moving along to here's something we think is workable yes yeah in fact inside of each of those there's like iterations
1: within inside of each of those so even if you think of uh, you know uh, concepts there's multiple iterations to come up with multiple concepts and then a method of comparison between them uh to be able to make some more objective decisions so it isn't that someone comes in and blesses one and you know denounces the rest and this is the way we're going it's like no there's some objective ways cuz you got to keep the whole team that you're uh you're relying on engaged too and these are some of these are their ideas that are going to be said no to or adopted and so on um but there's iterations within every one of those cycles um Uh, I had someone asking a lot of questions one time about which tools do you apply within which sections? Uh And it's not a bad question to ask. And it's, you know, I'm going to give the consultant answer. It depends. Right. But, the other thing is it isn't so much what tools are used in which sections, it's how deep do maybe the tools get applied in which sections. Because early on, you can be looking at a whole value stream and use a value stream map, but there's maybe not as much definition on the process boxes. But as you get further in, you're still using the value stream map, but the depth that you're going into is, is, is deeper. And so there's some iterations even within tools that happen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I I jotted something down about that. And there's a question that came in from David, you may have already said what you would want to say about this. But David had said in in my experience, in process development, there's usually an iterative element to it. Where does that fit into the six con approach? So I I think you've addressed that. Is is there anything else, though, that, that you would want to say to that? No, I'm glad he asked the question because it absolutely, I don't want it
1: to come across that this is a linear thing. It's uh, there's iteration within. Again, that's maybe why we describe them as lenses because you know, in context, you're looking in more more general, but you might be going through some iterations within there. I think in the book, we go through eight eight different iterations before we settle on the final, here's what we're actually going to configure around. Um, So it is heavily iterative because it's very learning based. And it's also, you know, rather than have a general discussion about, is this workplace design better than this? Well, let's mock it up and give it a try. Right. You know,
0: yeah, how do we know until we try? And I think one of the keys, whether it's an assembly line or a production cell or a clinic, how do we iterate in a way that is uh less expensive and less risky than building the real thing and then realizing, oh no, we oh we 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 missed something. Like that's where you said mock-ups and strategies like that are key, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, uh that's that's always part of the kind of the thing is how. How detailed, how elaborate do you make a mock-up or a prototype? And the reality is that uh, let me back up here. The uh, reality is that uh, you almost need to walk into it like, well, what are we trying to learn here? You know, what what are we trying to compare? What are we trying to discover? What are we trying to expose here? And then make it uh, elaborate enough to do that, and no more elaborate Mm -hmm. at all. Yeah.
0: I mean, do you, in your experience, do you do you see a role um, for certain, you know, computer-based simulation as a way of testing different concepts or approaches? There, yes,
1: with with parts of it. Um, the the you, you caught me hesitating there. There's kind of a middle ground there because we also don't want to do it. Um, I, my my early industrial engineering roots were in computer-based simulation and you can very quickly come up with something that completely disengages the workforce because it's just way above them you know not it, it's it's and, and so that's that's why there was that little bit of hesitation sure. is there there's a way to take people through that uh and some of it is actually having them involved in validating the models um so that they go wow this does predict what i just did and and then now it, it has a whole lot more meaning than yeah
0: i mean i think maybe there's a parallel um, you know there's a time and a place for simulation perhaps um the parallel might be that you know uh, looking at metrics performance measures critically important but that's not a substitute for going out to the workplace to to really see what's going on with your own eyes so you can know, find a balance yeah yep Um, There was another question here that came in um, from from Howard. Uh, I love the idea of architect instead of the name change agent. I think the risk of the quote-unquote change agent is that they frequently don't grab onto your second point of making the process permanent. Um, So the question, any advice on metrics that you've seen used to help us tell if the new process is actually quote-unquote sticking? Is that based on metrics or observation or both or? Um, so, uh,
1: I guess two two things there. Um, if the new process is the new value, you know, this is I, I created this confusion, so I apologize, okay? Because I've got I'm using through this whole thing, I've got two parallel process hats on. There's the, the value stream, and then there's the 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 process of process development. And so let me try and answer one and then answer it in the context of both of those. Um, uh, One of the things that we really do encourage is... People to in the value stream development, you know, what are the the, the key metrics for the stakeholders? And again, I, I rattled off some uh, earlier. As far as you know, maybe it has a particular profit margin. It has a you know a particular uh, you know return on investment or pro- or particular profit margin, particular quality level. It can be delivered on time at a certain you know certain on time delivery capability. Um, you know, you can also. Um, I've not seen a lot do this, but you know you could have environmental impact or something as a target. You know you, you could do that up front, make that a target. Then the trick becomes, okay, that's what it looks like when it launches. Okay, so it's say it's running 90 days, or you've had this clinic going for 90 days, and we come out and measure it. Did it hit all those things? Well, those same measures you could probably measure the day you start up too, and it would be the same measures. But if it was going to be say eight weeks before you actually open the doors to the clinic, what would those metrics really look like eight weeks early? And they might not be exactly the same. And so like, for instance, uh, maybe delivery capability, you can't measure because you haven't delivered, but there might be some inputs or some factors that affect your ability to deliver. Are those on target? You know, Um, and I, you know, one thing that we look at now, this is a manufacturing, but like really early on to measure delivery capability is labor linearity and flexibility of the line. Can it produce just as efficiently? And I'm making up numbers now 15, 30, 45, 60, 75, and 100 seconds. Because if it can produce efficiently at all those, well, I have some higher confidence. Ninety days after start of production, which might be eighteen months from now, that it 's going to be able to match the demand very closely and help me hit my delivery and my cost targets you know, and so that 's one of the things we encourage is how do you take these late metrics or these running metrics and how do you back them up earlier and earlier and earlier in the time frame um, relative to measurements on the process of process development that's where I would look at a, a couple of things. One is just what is the lead time through that? Um, number two, if there's certain milestones that you establish within there, what is the uh, capability of actually hitting those milestones? How often are they being hit? How often are they not being hit? Yeah. Um, and then uh, there also might be some opportunities uh at, in that space to just do some measurements of how much of the new projects that are being launched, you know how much we did so much investment in new processes this year this year. How much of it actually is going through this, and how much of it is still coming through the old way? Yeah, um, there could also be another way of doing some measurement on uh, before and after as far as how much when. Th- A line launched, how far off was it on its target metrics and how long did it take it and how much resource did it take to get it back on target? Because that's one of those things that ideally you want that to go away. You know, that if we said we're going to launch with, you know, uh, you know, 99.7% on-time delivery in model mix and sequence, then we want the day of launch it to be at that, you know.
0: Um, so we have another question here. Thanks for that, Eric. We have another question here from Faisal who says, uh, first off, wonderful presentation. Um, nice to see you mention HR and its role. Um, so the question is wondering if you could elaborate a bit on finding the organizational sweet spot as an external consultant. So I'm, we might want to ask Faisal to maybe put in a bit of a follow-up, um, follow, finding the sweet spot of how to navigate an organization in general, or finding the sweet spot, and like would an external consultant ever be the system architect?
1: I think the I think the system architect actually needs to be an internal person. Like I would be a terrible system architect. Now, you could pair me with someone that I'm developing to be the system architect. That's, that's another, you know, that's another approach. Okay. But I always think the system architect has to be, it has to be internal because it's, it's someone that's going to need to be there day to day, day in and day out, m- m- nurturing the system, especially early on, you know, you, you would love it to be a, a day somewhere in the future where you don't have to have a system architect that's watching over this process and nurturing it along. But, let's solve that problem when we get there. Um, I think a lot of times, even just uh, lean as an initiative within an organization, there's usually someone who is shepherding that early on. And it turns out we, as much as we want lean to be in everybody's daily work, uh, the need for that role usually goes on for a while. Um, And so to that question, you know, yeah, the, the system architect needs to be an internal person um no i'm sorry go ahead no is there is there more like the as far as the i,
0: I am mean, if i could get a little clarity on the what's meant by the sweet spot and um yeah i haven't seen a follow up from Faisal, but okay. look for that if um if they're still on the line um to maybe help clarify around that but one, one thing you made me think of again it seems like there's a parallel to between this role and a value stream manager. Like I see an ideal future state where this is now it's just how the how the organization thinks and manages itself in terms of value streams and focuses on flow and is broken down silos. That formal role of value stream manager might go away, but to your point, it might be very helpful and necessary for a while or any internal process improvement specialist. I mean, Toyota still has, an internal group to help maintain and teach standards related to the Toyota production system. And arguably by definition, TPS is the way they do business, but there's still a role for somebody to, I don't know if they would use the word architect, but somebody to help oversee and yeah. Yeah.
1: You could, uh, in fact, I could like, and again, I, I don't want to talk to about the book so much. I'd rather talk about the topics that people want to talk about here, yeah. but the uh the way we wrote the the actual book there was a pair of people that fulfilled the system architect role because in the particular organization we wrote as a story in this particular organization there wasn't a clear cut this needs to be the system architect but if you were to take a model on like that early on you know and this is where people need to get creative about their own own situations that system architect uh you know coming out of the back end of that now you got a process developed one of those people could stick around to be the value stream manager and the other person continue to be the system architect to take it to the next the yep. next place and maybe develop the next value stream manager. Um, there might be a way of pairing a value stream manager into this. If, if your organization has that kind of structure where you're gonna have a value stream manager, maybe they're part of that implementation team and paired with the system architect. So now the system architect's role is still that technical help but at the end of the day, they move on to the next thing. They still own the overarching process of process development and how to make that better and how to help leadership understand their role. And now they come and they nurture the next value stream manager. Yeah,
0: because for me, it seems like one of the key takeaways or a high level summary is you know we often focus on making sure we have a repeatable process, appropriately flexible to help get the work done for the customers then there's also a process for bringing new process to be or the new version of that process to be if we're doing that enough hopefully it's a repeatable but refined process for that over time yeah that's a
1: that's kind of a good way to to tie all that together is yeah just just like we would try to design a repeatable process to generate value for the customer what we're trying to do is generate or create a repeatable process to generate value to generate value for the customer. You know, it's, it's like one one level removed. OK,
0: uh, maybe we have time for uh, a couple other questions here. So Jessica said, again, thank you for a wonderful presentation. Uh, she's here in a small nonprofit in Chicago, and the improvement process is still pretty new in human services areas. So she was wondering um, do you have any advice on tools or systems you would recommend for tracking and recording some of the history that you talked about in the context of system architects, how to track that history in a meaningful and accessible way.
1: Yeah uh, that's that's I I would uh, welcome a, a good a good like a really good solid example in that space. Um, there's the obvious ones where people maybe will set up a, uh, uh, you know, just an internal site, a SharePoint site or something like that to capture. My, my, I'm not saying don't do that, but part of my caution there is if you don't design. Here I am going off on process again. If you don't design a process to put data into that
0: mm-hmm.
1: and to categorize it in a certain way. And then to also sunset stuff as it gets older, archive it or something, you fast forward in two or three years and you've got this unmanageable snowstorm in there that no one goes in there anymore. And so you didn't really achieve what you wanted. Okay. Um, One thing that, uh, and this is going to be a really like, I know kind of a very general answer. And so I don't know if we'll see if there's a want to ask a follow-up question if it's not quite helpful. But one of the most effective ways to capture knowledge is to build it into the work itself, okay? Um, and we do that, the the physical version of that, and that's where it's easier, is when we start to learn about how to maybe better lay out a workplace, and we physically create that layout. And now there's like this physical example of, well, yeah, don't, don't put that thing in the way because the person has to reach through here or don't put this here you know that you can actually create a physical thing that actually is an embodiment of the lessons learned okay when you get into knowledge work that gets a little foggier Mm -hmm. but are there ways of putting those lessons learned into the work of doing some of this, I'll call it this more knowledge work. Um, sometimes that might be done through checklists. Sometimes that might be do, done through, uh, you know, a software that uh, gives you cues. Um, now I'm kind of getting more engineering oriented, but uh, you know, you can develop CAD systems that say, no, you can't do that kind of dimension or that kind of uh, maneuver in here because that violates the the, the standards, the, the knowledge that we've captured.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Eric. We're almost out of time. I will tack on a comment, you know, for Kinexus customers who are using our software to track their improvement activities, their Kaizens, their A3 uh, and uh, initiatives. If they were to embrace this, um, you know, process design methodology, I could see them um, configuring and using Kinexis to help track that process development model and lessons learned and um, improvements over time, uh, you know, as as as, the, um, as one former repository. Um, so again, our uh, presenter today, I wanna thank you, Eric. Uh, he has been Eric Effington. He's the president of Lean Shift Consulting. Go check out his website at leanshift.com. And I hope you go um, check out the book. Again, the, the full title of the book is The Power of Process, A Story of Innovative Lean Process Development, Um, co authored with Matt Zayko that's available now. So um, Eric, thank you. Congratulations on the launch of the book. And thanks for taking some time to do the webinar today. Okay. Well, thanks for having me in and everybody. Thanks for joining. Thanks everyone for being here. There are some thank yous. Thank you for a great presentation coming in on the chat. So thank you everyone for attending. Thanks again, Eric.